Well, greetings, New Hope Church friends and family. It's great to see you on this Sunday as we gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus. I am so thankful to be with those of you who are right here on our main campus as well as connecting with those of you who are joining us in our online community from far and wide. And I know there are folks from far and wide this weekend, or rather this past week, uh, New Hope Church hosted a number of uh, Azerbaijani ministry leaders that uh, have come in from around the world. And a couple of you told me, hey, when I am back home in my uh, place of uh, residence, uh, where I live overseas, I watch New Hope Church and worship with the New Hope Church family. And so welcome to you wherever you are here today. Uh, it's great to be with you. My name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And did you hear... Uh, Chris, in the video just now, he said that two or three years ago, uh, there were no known believers among the Mangala people, but today, by the grace of God and the power of God, there's over 2,000. Did you hear that? Can we just give the Lord praise for that? I don't know about you, but when, when that was said, I wanted to like jump up and, and uh, just acknowledge that, so I thought, well, I'll do that when I get up, so there we go. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, here just a bit ago... We sang out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Pastor Dayton uh, presented that to us from Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah is telling the story of being in the throne room of heaven. And he sees the cherubim flying around the great throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this holy God, to be holy is to be set apart. It is to be uh, unique. It is to be different. It is to be uh, one that is not like anyone else or anything else. Holy for sure is this mighty God that we have. And because he's not like anyone else, he does things in a very unique way. And so he moves toward us with mercy. He moves toward us with grace. He moves toward us with justice. He moves toward us with his goodness. He moves toward us with his love. Uh, just this past week, I was talking to a young woman, uh, a single mom, and I was reminding her of this holy God who loves her and her kids so very much. He sees her. He knows her by name. He loves her. He cares for her. And indeed, he does so for the kids as well. She needed to hear this because, boy, there, there are some heroes out there, and there are few, though, that rise to the category of a single mom making life work the way she does with her family. She needs to hear that. Kids, you need to hear it. If you have a parent who's uh, raising you all by himself or herself, or if you have a whole family around you, praise God, but let me tell you, you need to hear, you are seen and loved by Jesus and he cares for you. Moms and dads, single or married, you are seen and loved by Jesus and he cares for you and he has power to affect in your life. This is the God that we have. Mighty, holy, merciful, good, just, kind, the embodiment of all that is ultimate love. This is his heart to move toward those who are so broken and in need, like all of us, and he has a special place in his heart for those that the world wants to kind of have off in the margins. 
As a matter of fact, when we look at the passage today, it happens to be our passage, our next passage in the book of Malachi, we're going to see that this God has a heart for, uh, among those that I've just mentioned, he's got a heart for the widows. He has a heart for orphans. He has a special place in his heart for those who are financially disenfranchised. He has a special place in his heart for the immigrant. These are, this is the word of God. This is God's beating heart. Interestingly enough, whether you are an immigrant or an orphan or a single parent toughing it out in this whole world, we hear that God cares, we hear that he's loving, but that's not always the experience we have in the day-to-day. The challenges of life, the systems and structures of the world around us press against us. And actually, too easily we ask the question, too easily we ask the question, does God even see me? Does he know me? Does he care? Does he really have power? Or to ask it the way the people in Malachi's day asked it, and we see it at the end of Malachi chapter two. Here's what we read, you can see it up on your screen. Where is the God of justice? Where is the God who makes things right? Where is the God who rectifies things? Where is the God of justice? That's their question. That's their question, and it's the question we're gonna wrestle with here for these few minutes. And it's a very important question, very important question. Part of why it's an important question is because when you and I look out into the world, boy, we see wickedness, and it seems like those who are wicked, those who are evil, they're the ones that have all the trophies. They're the ones that have all the accolades. They have all the jollies in life. Everything seems fine to them and with them and for them. And you and I are looking on going, that ain't right. And we're wondering, is really? The wicked seem to get the leg up on everything. In fact, this is nothing new. The historian Asaph in Psalm 73, he talks about this. This goes way back to ancient days. Psalm 73, here's what he says. And I will tell you, this passage is very familiar to me because I, I, I resonate with a lot of what, or what, what Asaph says resonates a lot with me here. Asaph, uh, Psalm 73 Verse three and following, he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And actually, Asaph goes on and wonders, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Oh, my goodness, yes. It does feel that way sometimes. But you know, here's the deal. When we ask the question, where is the God of justice? It's not always about the wicked out there who seem to have no troubles. Sometimes we ask that question because we ourselves are wounded by those in power who don't care about us. And that wound is painful, it is deep. 
And you don't necessarily have to be someone lacking privilege to feel that way. King David of all people felt that way. King David, he's the king of a great nation. And yet, according to Psalm 69, according to Psalm 69, David, David had some serious challenges. In the middle of Psalm 69, we're told that there are these people who are in power. They, they gather at the city gate. That's where all the power people go. And it says they're complaining about David and they're uh, picking away at his authority. And as if that's not enough, David goes on and says that the drunkards out in the gutters of the town, they themselves are picking at David. David's getting it at both sides. Those in power and those who are impoverished out in the streets. And David, he just, he, it's, it's relentless for him. This pain that, is grown, that has grown within him and the way he's been treated by, by the people around him. And he's the king. And yet he says here in Psalm 69, these words, and boy, these could be your words today too, perhaps. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord. Any of you ever cry out to God like that? And it's not just somebody who's privileged, but even those who really, the way the world works for right or wrong, good, bad, or ugly, they're just not really seen by the world. I can't help but think of Naomi, the book of Ruth, in the middle, or the first part of our Old Testaments, this story of this woman who has lost so very much, it's so painful, her life. Her husband is gone. She's lost both of her sons. She's lost her home. She's lost everything that is just basic to make in life work. And on a particular time, a particular day, she finds herself wandering back into the town of her youth, and some people there notice her remarkably, and they come to her, are you Naomi? And here's what Naomi has to say uh, in, in uh, Ruth chapter 1. Uh, she tells him, she says, uh, don't call me Naomi. Why would you call me Naomi? She says, she says, I, instead, Naomi means pleasant, instead call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity onto my life? Oh, my goodness. Naomi, David people of Malachi's day, a single mom that is desperately trying to make ends meet here in our community, or perhaps you sitting right there in front of me right now might ask the question, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? Now, the people of Malachi's day understand they're living under the heel of tyrannical kings, the Persian kings. They're living under the heel of, of a corrupt local uh, political officials. They're living under the heel of wayward priests, these religious abusers. 
And no wonder, therefore, at the end of chapter 2, they ask, where's the God of justice? And you and I also, if we're honest, we live under systems and structures that, that uh, don't reflect the just heart of a holy God. And we deal with people and attitudes that are likewise. And so we too ask, where's the God of justice? And you know, he has an answer. This God answers that question. The question is, where's the God of justice? And it's as if he says, I got an answer for you. Now his answer, you need to understand, uh, his answer uh, reveals to us a couple of things. We'll talk about specifically his answer in a moment, but I do want to set it up that his answer reveals a couple things. One is that he is the God who comforts those who are wounded. Secondly, he is the God who confronts those who wound. Did you hear that? He's the God of comfort and he is the God of confrontation. He will comfort those who are the brunt of injustice and he will confront those who bring it about. He rectifies, that is to say, comforts and makes right the situations that push people down and he is retributive, that is to say, he's punitive and chastising to those who do the pushing. Now with that laying before us here, then we get specifically his answer. Where is the God of justice? And at this moment, this is God speaking through the mouthpiece of, of uh, Malachi's life. God, in effect, says, I got an answer for you. Here you go. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Instead of giving us an idea, he gives us a person. The person first is not who you might think. Uh, the person is, well, we'll see. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Simply this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Hard stop right there. Let's stop right there. This is a direct prophetic reference to John the Baptist, to John the Baptist. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead as we continue in the book of Malachi, as we get closer to the Christmas season. Uh, this is a direct reference to John the Baptist. Now, it's not the only prophecy about John the Baptist in the Old Testament. One of the most famous prophecies uh, in the entire Bible, actually, is found in Isaiah chapter 40. This repeated several times in the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah prophesies about the coming man known as John the Baptist. Uh, he says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now notice this, by the way. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed until all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love, by the way, that the setup here has this uh, individual who's going to come. He's a herald, a proclaimer. Uh, from Isaiah's perspective, from Malachi's perspective, uh, it's still off in the distant future. John the Baptist is going to show up on the scene. He's going to be this herald, this announcer, this proclaimer, introducing the world to Jesus, telling the world Jesus has arrived. But according to Isaiah, when he shows up, 
and he begins to unfold his message. It's going to be a message about a powerful God who takes the valleys and raises them and the hills and lowers them and makes things equal and makes things level, brings order to the chaos. That, by the way, friends, is a matter of God's justice, his just heart. Now, it's not just the Old Testament that we see prophecies about this John the Baptist. We see it also in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, in the Christmas passages, no less. Luke chapter 1, you have a man named Zechariah. He's working in the temple. He's a priest. He's doing his priestly duties, and suddenly an angel appears to him. And the angel says to him, "Uh, in effect, you're going to have a boy, and he will be great before the Lord, verse 15. And then it goes on, uh, it says, he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then actually at the end of Luke chapter one, we read these words about this child. He will be called the prophet of the most high. He will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from high, giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadows of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Right there in those words, remarkably, remarkably, we see this coming together of of the uh, cleansing of the sinner because of the work of this Jesus and peace that uh, follows and lands upon uh, the shores of the human heart and, and light that is shining into the dark and shadowy places. Those are issues of of justice and of God's newness that he brings to the created order. We can't rightly say, it's, it's impossible to say, oh, pastor, can you just talk about the gospel and don't talk about matters of justice because that's, that's somehow a distraction. Yeah, except for the fact that in the word of God, in the gospel accounts, We have a presentation of this uh, proclaimer, him alone, who is casting a vision for the cleansing of sin and the making right of all the wrongs. He can't separate those things out. And ultimately, historically, this John does come, John chapter 1, and what we see here about uh, this John is is so great. He He says, I am. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's self-aware. He knows he's the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the one that says, make straight the way of the Lord. And then the next day after he makes this public pronouncement, sure enough, Jesus shows up on the scene. And John the Baptist in front of a crowd points to Jesus. He says, hey, see him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Beautiful, powerful. And so we have this herald who's going to come and he's going to introduce us to this Jesus. Well, that gets us to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1b and following. All right, so look with me here. 
I'll start back in verse one at the top. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priestly class, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in the righteousness or in righteousness to the Lord. Now, I, friends, the question is, where is the God of justice? And I told you that he doesn't give an idea as an answer, he gives a person. John the Baptist is going to come and introduce us officially to the God of justice. And then the God of justice says in his word, Malachi chapter 3, I'm on the way because remember it is the living God is talking here. And he says of himself, the Lord is going to show up. It's as if God is saying, you want justice? I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I see all. I've got all power, I am good, I make all things new, I'm on my way. And so it is, right here, this presentation that ought to stop us in our tracks. Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, in effect is saying to the question being asked, well, somebody's going to come and set the stage, and then I'm going to step onto it. And when I step onto it, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go among many places, among the priests. And I'm going to highlight for them the ways that they are falling short of my holiness, my standards. Uh, indeed, I am going to, because I'm good like this, I am going to refine them by fire and therefore burn out the dross of injustice and unrighteousness. And then I'm going to take my big bar of lye soap and apply it to the fabric of their souls and cleanse it. Now, it would be tempting for you and me to go, wow, he's going to do that for the priest of old. But remember what we've said here these recent weeks. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, under the reign of Jesus, we who are disciples of Jesus are what? Priests. That's exactly right. I heard some of you say it a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And so God's cleansing ways and his sanctifying work not only can have effect for the uh, leaders of old, but the body of Christ today. That's you and that's me. And remember, this Jesus is the one who says unequivocally, Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Look, after all, I've, I'm making all things New, that's right, all things new. All things new. Now lest we wonder, is he really? How might he do that? Well, Malachi gives us a tease. And it is really a subtle prophecy for a significant moment. And so if you return to Malachi chapter 3, right in the middle of verse 1, it says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now this is a tease. It's a subtle hint towards something dramatic 
that's going to come during the life of Jesus. It helps us if we also look at Malachi 3 verse 5. Because when we look at Malachi 3 verse 5, we see more of the heart of this God and the things that bother him or the things that motivate him. And so here he is. He's going to come to a temple. All right. Verse 5. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner or the immigrant, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. These are the things God cares about. And you know what we, we too often do uh, in the church, and the uh, evangelicals are quite good at this, we get focused on the first two, sorcerers and sexual things. And we spend a lot of time on that, but heaven forbid we go on and talk about uh, widows and orphans and immigrants. We, we actually tend to downplay that part of it. Because too often it flies right in the face of political ideology. But we're citizens of a better kingdom. And so we need to think about God's world from God's perspective and the things he cares about, he's motivated by. And it is holistic to see his concerns this way. Now with that in mind then, what's the moment where he steps into the temple? Well, I commend you to Mark chapter 11. In your New Testaments, Mark chapter 11, which by the way, just to remind us, Mark is a historical account of the good news of Jesus. In fact, the very first words of the gospel of Mark say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here we are under the rubric of gospel, 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 dot, dot, dot. We fast forward 11 chapters and we find Jesus walking into his temple in Jerusalem. And here's what he says here, or rather, here's what it says. Jesus and the disciples came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. This is a prophecy being fulfilled by Malachi, uh, the prophecy of Malachi 3, verse 1 and 5 is being fulfilled right here. Jesus goes into the temple, driving out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard all of this and were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished in awe at his teaching. Now, oh my goodness, friends, wow. Jesus goes into the temple just as prophesied by Malachi, God through Malachi, and he confronts the wayward priests because of their partiality and their protectionism and their unwillingness to welcome the stranger, those in the margins, specifically in this case, it turns out, the sojourner or the immigrant, the people from the different nations. And so God confronts them, Jesus confronts the, the religious elite about this, 
challenges them about their partiality and protectionism, and then opens up the way for the nations to come in and enter into the community of faith. And by so doing, by so doing, he gives a clear demonstration of how his heart beats. Holistic transformation is what is on his heart and on his mind. Now, the great scholar A.R. Fawcett uh, puts it this way, the earnest, or that is to say the down payment of that unexpected coming to judgment, which is uh, an allusion to the very end of days when Jesus ultimately makes all things new and crushes wickedness uh, once and for all, judging it eternally, uh, confronting it directly, judging it eternally. Uh, this event in the temple in Jerusalem is sort of the, the nod toward that, the down payment, the earnest toward that. He says here, uh, you can see it on the screen, the earnest of that unexpected coming judgment is given in the judicial expulsion of the money-changing profaners from the temple of the Messiah. Jesus is determined that his rightness will be pervasive, and he's driving out that which is evil so that his goodness can flourish in the hearts and souls of humanity. Now, as we look at this, <laughs> we see this is, there was warnings about this all through the Bible. Uh, there's plenty of places I could go, but what I'll do is I'll go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Notice the, the uh, coming together of all of those ideas, justice and righteousness and salvation. My righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. No, the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds to the holiness of God, these I will bring to my mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And this is why, by the way, at New Hope Church, we talk about and aspire to be a Christ-centered community for all peoples. All peoples, because it's the heart of God. Listen, friends. The question is asked, where is the God of justice? And what we see is he puts himself at that intersection of confrontation and comfort. Did you hear that? Listen to me. It's very important. He puts himself at that intersection of confrontation and comfort. Regarding confrontation, he steps in. And he confronts the evildoers in their sin, whether it's in the days of Malachi, these wayward priests who, as we've already well established, were so self-absorbed, or there in the temple uh, in the year 33 AD where Jesus confronts the, the priestly class because of their partiality and protectionism. What might it be for you or for me that he has to confront? What are the things that he has to work out in your life and in my life? There's only one true response 
to him confronting sin. And it is either repentance or rejection. Do you hear this? Repentance or rejection. And about the rejection, especially for those of us who are not in Christ, oh, that we would be wary and very sobered. Because according to the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Jesus offers in John chapter 3 these words. John chapter 3 verse 36, Jesus says this. He says, he says whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this a couple years ago in our exploration through 2 Peter. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now friends, this is for those who are not in Christ. I said a little bit ago that one of the ways that, that we receive the answer about is God just and where is this God is he confronts evil. He confronts what is wicked. And the question is, are you going to reject that or not when he does? And even for those of us in Christ, it may not be eternal condemnation, but I guarantee you it may be a withdrawal of blessing and favor, discipline, as the book of Hebrews tells us. Oh, but listen here, listen. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way because God always embraces the repentant heart. Rejection is not the only option. Repentance, that is the goal. And just, just hours, days, three or four days after Jesus turned over the tables in that temple this sinless Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He was arrested by the authorities. He was tried by a kangaroo court of religious elitists. He was crucified and executed on a Roman cross. And then, and then amazingly, days later, he rose from the dead alive. And then, sometime later, he ascended into the heavenly realms and right now is seated at the right hand of his father where he is pleading with his father on behalf of you and me who follow him in faith. That's what the theologians call the great session of Christ. And as if that's not enough, guess what? He's coming back in glory and triumphant power. I can't wait for that day. How about you? And because of these realities, sin death, the devil, injustice, all evil, none of it has the final word. None of it. None of it. And for you, a question would be, are you willing to, with all that in mind, just confess sin before a holy God and let him deal kindly with you? 
1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What things might you need to confess? What things do you need to take to the cross of Jesus? What things do you need to have the Holy Spirit scrutinize in your world? Unless you wonder what it could be, maybe Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 would be helpful for you. Just as one way to kind of get at what are the things lurking deep within. Occult issues? Sorcery it says in the text, but we could extrapolate that out to mean just worldly ideas that you are buying. Or perhaps sexual uh, sins? Well, let me tell you, friends... That is one of the more prominent things for sure. And I'm not talking about the people outside doing the big sexual sins. I'm talking about just folks within the body who live secret lives. But then we go further according to what the text says. What do you do with the widow? Do you honor her? What do you do with the child? Do you demean him? What do you do with the person that is financially strapped? Do you look down on them with contempt and manipulate them for your own gain? And what do you do with the immigrant? Do you stiff arm them and tell them that they're another and they are somehow not worthy of you? And so just a, a casual survey of just that one verse before the cross and with a mirror may reveal a lot. But again, God always embraces the repentant heart. Now that's relating to confrontation. What about comfort? Oh, the comforting heart of God. Oh, so rich and pure. Zechariah chapter 7 tells us yet again about the heart of God. Here's what it says. He says right here, verses 9 and 10. It says, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And it starts by saying, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. And why would we do this? Because God is holy. And this is his heart. And he sees when we violate his heart. Psalm 146 tells us these words. We read, this God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, he keeps faith forever and he executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry and sets the prisoners free and opens the eyes of the blind and lifts up those who are bowed down he loves the righteous he watches over the immigrant he upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin Yes, he confronts, but he comforts, he lifts up, and he helps. He is forever faithful. And so it is in Revelation chapter 21, I cited it earlier, but from a different location within that rich passage, 
we read these words. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the justice of God. Right here. And he rectifies all that is wrong and repudiates all wrongdoing. And so what would be our response to all of this? How do we respond to such? Well, Malachi 3 verse 5 wraps up with a haunting statement. It says... I will draw near in judgment to those who do not fear me. So the flip side of that is we should fear him. We should be in awe of him. Psalm chapter 33 verse 8 says it this way, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And that word for fear, it's what it means. Reverence, awe, astonishment, respect, honor. Oh, my friend, that that would be our posture. Uh, That was the, 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 the posture of the disciples on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. There they are. They're in awe of this Jesus. They're trying to figure him out. His life, his words have rocked their world. And there they are gathered in a borrowed dining room celebrating the famous Passover feast. At the time that the ritualistic part of the meal was unfolding, they come to what's called the breaking of the bread. And now this is known as the unity loaf, the time when the gathered faithful say we're united together as children under God's care but God did Jesus did something different there he at that moment he said this actually this bread is my body broken for you in remembrance of me eat of it as often as you will they didn't understand what he was talking about what body broken what in the world Jesus knew that in a matter of hours, his own body would be broken on that cross. And I've said, you've heard me say it, it is remarkable to me that Jesus, who was holy and without sin, became broken on that cross so that we who are sinful and wicked could be made whole. It's unlike anything else in all of time and space and beyond. Speaking of which, later in the meal, they come to the cup of redemption, as it was called. And this is a time where memory takes the participants back millennia to when God redeemed freed the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. God had told them, take the blood of lambs and paste it over the doorposts and thresholds of your home 
And when the angel of the Lord comes through to met out his justice against the enslavers, he would see the blood and pass over those homes and those people would be free. So they come to this cup of redemption. The disciples are drinking it and Jesus says to them, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you will in remembrance of me. The disciples probably thought, what in the world? But this holy Jesus, he understood in a matter of hours, his blood would be spilled while he was hanging on that cross. There is no more precious commodity to be found than the blood of Christ. It cleanses, it washes, it sets us free, and it is the vast pool from which the eternal God makes all things new and just and good. Where is the God of justice? Laying down his life, lifting up those who would follow him, looking to the day when all things are made new, so selfless, so generous, so faithful is he. And he's right here, right now. You ask where he is, he's right here, right now. As you take your elements, as we worship, confess your sin, thank him for his goodness, and celebrate this one who is so generous and faithful.